Thank you for listening to the teaching podcast of Muncie First Church. If you would like to know more about us, go to MuncieFirstChurch.com. Or if you would like to support a ministry, go to the giving page, MuncieFirstChurch.com slash give. Well, let's jump into the teaching from this last week. Well, good morning, church. I'm glad you're here this morning. We're going to uh, continue this series running on empty today in our third week. we got one more next week, and Pastor Mark's going to finish that up for us. And then uh, we're going to step into a, a new series. I believe it's going to be called How to Be Rich. And so we're going to be talking about generosity and, and that. And that's going to be part of the kind of celebration and kickoff of, of the new church year. And so um, but this morning, as we start, I want to share with you what I consider to be one of my most embarrassing moments. Now, when I share this, you're going to be like, eh, eh, maybe not, probably not the most. I'm sure there have been plenty of other embarrassing moments, but for me, this is one of those moments that has just it has stuck with me. It really affected me um, in, in my life in, in, in a lot of different ways. And so, um, <clears throat> growing up, I lived, my parents were divorced, and I, I lived with my mom growing up, and uh, she, uh, among many of her, her faults, uh, she, one of the things that was very unique to her was she loved to give gifts. She was a gift giver. Anybody that that's your love language, that you just like to give gifts? What about those of you who like to receive gifts? Yeah, much more of that. Yeah, I figured. Um, she was just, in that way, I mean, she was a giver. She loved to give things. Christmas, man, it was a big deal. Birthdays, big deal all the time. And then, and, 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 and no different was the start of a new school year. She would go and school clothes shopping, take a school clothes shopping. That was a big deal to her. Um, I'm not sure why, but she just always, it was, a, it was a huge thing. And we would go and spend lots of more money than what we had probably, and, and she would buy us all new clothes every year, new shoes, new shirt, new pants, new, the whole nine yards. We got all, basically a whole new wardrobe every year. And uh, I remember one year in particular going into fifth grade, going into fifth grade. That was uh, kind of a big deal that year. And I was particularly excited about a shirt that I got. It had Tasmanian Devil on it, and it had this big button down here that if you pushed it, it would make that patented Tasmanian Devil sound. Not going to do it for you. Sorry, not happening. <laughs> Can't do it. Not going to do it. Um, but... <clears throat> I was excited. I was jazzed. I was like, this is the awesome. I can't wait to wear this shirt. And, and so fifth grade starts, and, 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 and I was starting a new school this year. This, my sister and I, we had moved, and we were starting in a new school. I knew like two people. I had a friend that I knew from kindergarten that went to that school, and then a new friend who uh, we had kind of just started hanging out maybe that summer or a little bit before. I didn't know anybody else. And I was thinking, man, everybody's going to be like... They're going to see my shirt. They're going to hear the noise. I'm going to be the cool kid. <laughs> you laugh because you know that's probably not how it worked out. That's not at all how it went down. So school starts, fifth grade, big deal. You know, I'm thinking I'm going to be awesome. I get there and I realize that nobody else is wearing shirts like that. Uh, I didn't get the memo that styles were changing. Um, somebody didn't send that to my mom. They, she didn't, they didn't let her know that, that now, because see, my, my new friend, he's wearing uh, jeans that were slightly baggy, not straight leg, which weren't cool. You know, they, they're cool now. They weren't cool then. And that's all I had. 
You know, you remember those that like you have to like have somebody help you get them off, you know, because they're stuck on your foot. Th- those, that's what I had. But no, now what's cool is slightly baggy jeans, not 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 the crazy baggy, just slightly baggy. And and nobody was wearing cartoon character shirts. Those weren't cool. Cause see, those came back. Those got cool again, but they weren't cool then. And 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 that's what I had. No one was wearing that. They had like cars and and guitars and band shirts and and when I say band shirts. I don't mean like trumpet band, school band. Sorry, you, you guys who did that. I mean like cool band shirts. Sorry. Not to rub it in for those of you who are in band. No, but they were cool, and I didn't have any of them. Not a one. All I had was my Tasmanian devil shirt that you push the button on. You know, that's all I had. And, and they had, my friend had a sweater. I mean, that seems really silly saying it out loud. I had never, the only sweater I remember having is one that, dare I say, Bill Cosby would have worn, you know. I mean, you didn't want to go outside and it made you itch. Remember those, you know, like, like sandpaper on the inside? That's what I had. And I just remember the day I wore my Tasmanian Devil shirt to school feeling absolutely ridiculous. Just completely aware for the first time that I didn't fit in. That I was different in some ways. And I know this sounds really dumb because it's just a shirt. Why does it matter? But to my fifth grade mind, it was everything. And in that moment, I remember just being so embarrassed, so self-conscious, and desperately desiring to fit in and realizing that I didn't. Now, thankfully, my two friends that I had, they, were, they, they didn't say anything. They didn't say, hey, dude, sorry, but you can't hang out with us if you're going to wear that dumb shirt. You know, they didn't, they didn't do that. And over 20 years later, even telling that story takes me back to that moment. You ever have something like that that just transports you back to that moment? I mean, it, 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 those feelings creep in. And I don't think, I'm not embarrassed by that now. I think it's kind of dumb that I was embarrassed. But I do feel a sense of, like, a hit to my pride It has affected me in in the area of pride in my life. And I think that pride is an issue for a lot of us. We've been talking in this series of things that cause us to run on empty or that affect us when we're running on empty. And one of those things that I think hits most of us is is our pride. It's in the area of pride. And for me, though, you know, that was so long ago, it still is an issue in my life in the area of pride. I've discovered that, I, I, for me, that what sometimes often matters is, is what people think of me, how people view me, uh, what others, I, I, I need someone else's approval to feel adequate, or that what people believe about me affects how I believe about myself, that I don't feel good enough. It reminds me of the, the quote, you maybe heard this, the, the clothes don't make the man, the man makes the clothes. I think that's how it goes. You've heard that, right? For me in fifth grade, it was all about the clothes. That's what made me valuable. That's what made me have purpose and meaning in life and fit in. And maybe you've felt that before, experienced that. Hey, am I alone in this? Have you ever been there before? A few rumblings over here. Maybe we're just not ready to admit it yet. Maybe we're not ready to admit it because pride is in the way. (laughs) 
See, perhaps you can understand this tension. And, and see, the challenge with pride is, is that pride is always present where feelings of inadequacy exist. Pride always creeps in in those moments when we feel not good enough. Pride is always at work when we're trying to compare ourselves to other people. You ever done that? Now, we won't make you get up here and be like, yes, and, and share. But, but I bet you there isn't one person in here kid or adult that can't say, oh, I've never compared myself to anyone else. I've just never done that. I'm just above that. I bet we all have struggled with that at some time or another. See, pride is really easy to spot in others, but not so much in ourselves. It's so easy to point out a prideful person unless it's you, right? So much harder. But see, pride is a quiet killer of relationships, of, of uh, marriages, workplace health and environments, community groups. It can be a killer of your small group community. It can even kill the health and culture in a church if we let it. Pride is extremely dangerous. See, we can become the person in the room that everybody rolls their eyes at. That nobody wants to engage in conversation because we've become off-putting and, and we just dominate the room. That we make people cringe or we begin to push people away with our prideful attitude and not even realize it. We can just think, oh, well, it's something wrong with them. Something wrong with them, not me. And we don't even realize it. Because pride is a sin that will always make you put yourself above others always I don't know a single person who struggles with pride that's putting other people first so when we're running on empty I think this is something that that happens to us we get really prideful and I and here's the reason I think why we do this is because sometimes it's the only thing we have left to cling to when you're burnt out when you're like I can't even deal with Monday I'm still stressed out about last Monday. Pride is the only thing we have left to cling to in those moments. And so we hold on to it dearly. But it's such a powerful trap that we never see it coming. Let me ask you, let me, let me give some scenarios and see, and, and, and you don't have to raise your hand, just maybe in your heart, raise your hand if these apply to you in any way. Have you ever felt like clothes make you important? Or your position at work matters most in your life? Where you rank and, and the hierarchy of your workplace environment? Have you ever struggled with feelings of insecurity or inadequacy? Do you fear being seen without makeup, ladies? And men, if you wear makeup, you shouldn't. Unless you're on TV or something then you might want to wear makeup. I don't know. That could get weird. We're going to stop. <laughs> Do you fear being seen as weak in the eyes of other people? Do you fear being seen as messy? Now, I know some of you, and you do not care about that at all. <laughs> you should. Some of you should. The others of us, it is an issue. And, and I don't mean like, I mean, it could mean like the figurative sense of your life is messy. 
I mean the literal sense that your life is messy, as in like when people come to your house, you worry about them seeing the mess and, and seeing things, or being in your office, or getting in your car, Allison, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm going to be in trouble later, but you know, that, that, that affects you so much so that you push people away because you don't want them to see that you're messy, or that your kids might misbehave. You fear someone finding out that they're not as perfect as you put on. Or that your marriage isn't as perfect as you let on. That you're not as wealthy as you want to look. Or that you have doubts in your faith. Oh no, what if they, what if they found out at church that I have doubts? I probably couldn't serve on the board. Probably couldn't volunteer anymore. Can't sing a worship song. Oh no. What if, what if they know? Or what if they realize that I have failed in areas of my life? What happens if somebody finds me out? See, pride is everywhere. And I think we all deal with it. The thing is, is that most of us, I'd say 99% of us don't wake up every morning singing a song about how awesome we are. We just don't. In fact, it's probably the opposite. You probably wake up and feel, I'm not awesome. I'm not doing the best job I can as a mom, as a wife, as a husband, as a father, as a boss, an employee, a coworker, a friend, a, a, a person in general, or as a Christian. Do you ever feel that way? So I think this is a condition that will absolutely leave us running on empty if we're not already there. And if we are there, it just becomes a death sentence because it's just piling more hurt, more struggle, more pain on top of already, you know, being burnt out. See, pride, I think, is a response most often to a deep-seated hurt or deep-seated hurts. But it then constructs in our life everlasting destruction. See, pride is a constructor of destruction. It builds up destruction in our life. And this obsession of self is a threat to our survival because it will cost us so much. It will cost us things like our friends, our money, our rest, our intimacy, our respect in the eyes of other people, our peace of mind, and our wisdom, even. It is something that will cost us dearly. And so this morning, I want to look at a story where I think this happened in a person's life um, in, in, a, in a big way. So much so that it not only affected his life, but as we talked last week, it affected many, many lives around him. And it's the story of David and Bathsheba. And parents, I'm just going to forewarn you right now, I'm going to do my very, very best to make this a PG retelling of the story of David and Bathsheba. I did not, planning ahead, did not know there were going to be children in the room, so I wasn't too worried about that, and now I'm very self-conscious about that, so we're going to try our very best, so, so you don't have to leave the room. But this is a story that I think many of us are familiar with, even if you're not, you haven't grown up in the church or you're new to church, you're probably somewhat familiar and maybe didn't even know it because the story of David and Bathsheba has been retold and told and documented for us in so many things, in, in movies, in literature, in songs. I mean, it is all over the place. This is something that we are somewhat 
familiar with. And so I want to, I I think that it is usually used to illustrate things like lust, uh, adultery, greed, power, failed leadership. But I think at its root, it is a story of pride. It's a story of pride. And I hope we'll see that as we as we read through this. So we're going to start 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. So I'll, I'll give you a minute if you want to turn there. Um, we're going to start with verses 1 through 5, kind of read that, and then we'll jump down to verses 22 through 27. It says this, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now I want to stop for just a second before we go on. Right away we see that David is not doing something he's supposed to do. The text says this is the time when kings go off to war and the king called in sick. You know, he stayed home. He said, no, I don't want to go. I'm going to stay home. And I've, I've heard other pastors who preach this text and authors talk about this and saying that, that this is at the height of David's uh, uh, prestige and his power. And in essence, he's basically decided, hey, I'm king. I don't have to go. I'm not going to do it. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit prideful of like, I can do whatever I want because I'm king. I'm king. I can do whatever I want. If I want to take a day off, take a year off, so be it. Then this is what happens. Nothing good could come from this beginning. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. And now she was, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So even that is full of pride. If you look at that, he's wandering around on the rooftop and decides she's pretty. I'd like to have her as my own. Finds out she's married. He doesn't say like any non-prideful, smart person would say, okay, that's somebody else's wife. We're just going to leave it alone. No, he just does whatever he wants. And then if you can imagine what this would be like, I can just see it in my head. And and this is me just kind of inferring modern day terms on this situation. David's kind of wandering around the palace, having himself a good day, and he goes into his office to check some messages, his, his you know, Jerusalem uh, voicemail service, you know, and, 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 he's, and he checks the message and it says this, hey David, uh, it's Bathsheba, just thought I'd let you know I'm pregnant, gonna have a baby, and because my husband's been away at a war all this time, just thought you want to know it's yours. Uh, call me back. Talk to you later. You know, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of what, what went down. And, and, and if you was to move it up, you know, several thousand years, you know, that's kind of what it was like. And, and this is not the news that David was hoping to get. 
I mean, you got to think that even in all of his pride and all of his, you know, bad decisions in this situation, he was not thinking this, this could go bad. He was thinking that I'm just going to, it's going to be like any other time in my life. Everything's going to work out just fine. I'm going to be great. But no. And so what does David do? Well, David decides to have Bathsheba's husband brought back in from war in the hopes that while he's home, he would go and spend time with his wife. Spend time with his wife. Um, if you don't get that, see me afterwards. Um, <clears throat> that's all I'm going to say. Um, and he doesn't. Because Uriah is an honorable man. And he says, why would I go spend time with my family and my wife when my other men and these other uh, you know, soldiers that are close companions of mine are off in war? I'm not going to do that. That's, that, would be, that would be wrong. And so he decides not to. And, and David says, well, okay, let's try to get him drunk. Let's send him home. Let's, you know, let's, let's work this out. It doesn't work. Because he is such an honorable man, he decides to sleep in, in the place where David's servants stay and refused to go home. And so uh, David decides, okay, well, last option. It's all he got left. Let's send him back into battle and put him at the front lines and hope that he gets killed. And so he sends a message to Joab. And I find this absolutely fascinating um, and, and terrible all at the same time. How does he do it? He writes a letter and sends it with Uriah to take back to Joab. Jo Uriah doesn't even know that he's carrying his own death sentence back to Joab. Can you imagine that? How low do you have to get to do that to somebody? And I think, uh, I can't say this with utmost certainty, but it seems to me that there is a relationship that exists between David and Uriah. There is some sort of connection. He had respect for him at the very least and yet he sunk so low to send him back into battle with his own death sentence. And this is what happens. Verse 22. It says, The messenger set out, and when he arrived, uh, sorry, when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. So this is after the fact. Uriah goes. He's, he's killed. This is the, the message that comes back to David. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out <clears throat> against us in the open, but we drove them back into the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the, from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Don't, don't miss this part. This is just, it, it sound, it's almost like TV. Say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Now, this event not only destroyed Uriah's life, it destroyed David's life, Bathsheba's life, and the life of their son. If you continue reading on into the next chapter, what you find is that their son actually dies as a result of this sin. That, and, and, and that David's life was never the same again. That, that pride 
destroyed his life in, in a huge way. Many authors and, and, and writers have said that this single event changed David's life forever. That the trajectory of his life was never quite right. Now, the Bible says that he was still a man after God's own heart. And so we believe that. But the potential of his life was changed. What could have come out of David's life was very different as a result of this event. And if you continue to read even further than just the next chapter, what you find is that this destroyed many, many, many people's lives that would come after David, that would follow him in his family line. You think your family has drama and some crazy people. You got maybe one crazy uncle. Read this. We can't even talk about it right now because it's, it's too bad to share in front of children. Seriously. Check it out when you get some free time. Read the following chapters. But, see, you and I know many, many people whose lives have been affected by pride. Wouldn't you say? I mean, we know people who, who we work with them. They're in our family. Maybe in our small group, maybe even in our church. People that we know whose lives have, whose lives have been changed by their prideful attitude. It affected their marriage, affected their relationship with their kids. Maybe it affected their ability to, to lead others. And if only David and these people that we know, if only they could have seen the warning signs. Only they could have seen the warning signs. See, I think there are many, many warning signs, but I want to give you four this morning that I think that we see every time pride exists, we see these things uh, either taking place or things that could pop up as red flags and help save us if we would listen to them. And the first one is this, superior, feeling superior. Prideful people always feel superior than others or they have an attitude of superiority. Now, maybe that doesn't, you're like, I don't, I don't understand. How, how so? Well, let me give you an example. Have you ever felt too good to do a certain task? It's like, that's beneath me. That's, I'm just too, I'm, no, I'm not going to do that. At work, maybe, in your family? I'm too good, I'm too good to, to do that work, or I'm too good to be around those people. Now, I know that exists in some of us. I've heard that. I've heard people say things before where it's like, can't go to that part of town. Don't want to be around those kind of people. What kind of people are you talking about? Poor people? People who struggle? People who have sins in their lives? Have you looked at your life? Just saying. What about going certain places, being around certain people? If, if we say yes to any one of those things, we might need to check our attitude and make sure we don't feel superior than other people. Something that goes hand in hand with superiority is the second thing, which is to be judgmental. Now, I don't think I need to explain this because I think we all understand what it means to be judgmental. But do we do this? You ever been guilty of being judgmental to somebody else? Maybe, you know, at work you think, well, I'm not like that person. You ever said that? No, I have. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not as bad as she is. Our marriage isn't quite as messed up as their marriage. Our kids don't quite behave like those kids. Am I, am I hitting on anything with anybody? Maybe? 
too afraid to admit it because you don't want to be judged, right? Can, can I just pause and say something for a second? And this might really bother you. Why is it that in the church, we can't confess our sin and be honest about where we are because we're afraid of being judged? The one place you should be able to go in your life and not be judged is the church. Amen? Because if Jesus Christ has forgiven us, who cares what the person sitting next to you thinks? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I get a little, little worked up. Third thing, and this, this is something I have seen so many times, unaccountable. Prideful people eventually, especially those who are in leadership, those of us who lead, if you lead somebody, this is a temptation that exists, is to reach a point, especially if you've been successful or you've been at it a long time, it's easy to fall into the trap of viewing yourself as being unaccountable. Think of David. He's up on the roof. He sees Bathsheba. He does what he does and thinks, you know what? I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to go off at war. I can have any woman in the kingdom, whether they're married or not. That's an attitude of, or at least a view of feeling like you don't have to be accountable to somebody else. Have you ever been guilty of that? It is a challenge. Very, very much so, I think, for many of us. And last thing, and I think this is more of a result of all of these things than a, a, a symptom maybe, is that you become isolated. You reach a point where you're isolated. And what happens is, is that people around you slowly begin to put distance between you and them. Because of your pride, they don't want to be around you. They, they isolate themselves from you, and then therefore you become isolated. People don't want to engage in conversation with you because your stories are always better than their stories. Your stories are always louder than their stories. And you dominate every room that you walk into. Now again, I'm not necessarily pointing any fingers, but is that true of you? I like the way Kerry Newhoff put it in, in the book, Didn't See It Coming. He says it this way, The only person your pride impresses is you. Nobody else is attracted to your arrogance or self-absorption. Think about this for a moment. When you go to lunch with people, when you go out to dinner with friends or you hang out in your small group, do you talk the most? Or do you listen? Do you dominate that room so much so that other people in the room don't want to talk? Hey, now, I'm going to brag on Allison for a second. She is very much the type of person that is ultra-sensitive to, and I don't mean that in like, she's so sensitive. No, I would head chopped off if I said that. She is very sensitive to other people in the room. I'm not as sensitive to other people in the room. I struggle with this. I don't recognize that someone else maybe wanted to say something and I just talked over them. But she does. And I get the, you know, Al, you know, or, or, or a look. It's a look. It's a look of like, shut up. Stop. Stop talking. You know, it's a double pat. Yeah, it's a double pat. I, I get more of a, usually it's a kick. It's a kick, you know. It's a, well, she calls it a nudge. I call it a kick. If I were standing, I'd have tripped, okay? Let's face it. No, but, but no, she recognizes that. 
And I think that's a sign of someone who isn't prideful. Because when, when, you're, when you're prideful and you walk in the room and just totally dominate all the time, you don't even notice. You have no idea that somebody else is, is wanting to talk or wanting to share or wanting to be a part of the conversation and enjoy what's going on because you just talk right over top of them. See, pride is going to leave us isolated if we're not careful. So how do we defeat pride? Well, I think it, it starts with developing a life of humility. We have to develop a life of humility. Because humility is the antithesis of pride. It is the exact opposite of everything that pride is. And as much as pride destroys in our lives, humility builds up. It, it, and, and, and what's interesting is that when pride exists and you begin to build in your life humility, it kind of pushes out the pride. And as long as there's some humility there, it will begin to push out more and more and more of the pride. Because they can't exist in the same location. So we have to cultivate, like you would cultivate a garden. I don't know if you, any of you in here like to garden. I am absolutely terrible at it. So this is a really bad metaphor for me, but it makes sense. We have to cultivate in our life, like we would a garden, humility. And the more that we try to grow humility, the more pride goes away. But we have to check its progress. You can't do like what we do and plant a flower in a pot and hope that somebody is going to water it and that it's going to just grow because it doesn't grow. We've got a ton of dead plants in a window right now that we could show to prove that. You know, Just hoping someone's going to water it does not work. And so we have to monitor it. And here's the thing. I think if we do this in our lives, our friends, our family, our coworkers will thank us. They will. They may never say it out loud, but they will in their hearts. Because, Man, there's something different about him. There's something different about her. I wonder what that is. So I want to give you a few things as we close this morning. How do we do this? How do we do this? Number one thing, check your gratitude tank. Now, this is a dumb way for me to say, monitor how thankful you are. How thankful are you? How grateful are you for your family? For your kids, your wife, your husband. You know, there's a big movement in our culture right now. If you've watched Netflix at all and have seen the show, I don't even know what it's called, but it's Marie Kondo and her tidying up. Is that what is it? I don't know. Yeah. In, familiar with this? Maybe, maybe not. It's this really tiny little Asian lady who comes into your home and helps you clean your house. And she has a crazy way of like folding clothes and organizing and all this. And she has a very unique uh, Thing that she does like I've only watched like one and a half episodes um, of it and and I was just blown away she comes into this house and she's this woman puts all of her clothes on the bed I mean it is piled a mile high with clothes and she says go through these clothes and with each garment thank that shirt now, I think that's a little bit different form of spirituality than what we believe in, 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 in Christianity. It's, I, don't know what she, I, don't know what, I don't know what she's thanking, that, that inanimate object. But the idea is good. The concept is good. She's saying, hey, be thankful for the fact that, that you had that shirt. And it was a good shirt. 
How many years did you wear that shirt? Men, many, many years you wore that shirt. Too many, many years you wore that shirt. That shirt should have been thrown away. Your wife told you many years ago to throw that shirt away, and yet you still wear it. Thank that shirt for its many years of service to you. She says, thank your home. She does this weird thing where she gets down like on her hands and knees and, and literally almost like a praying posture and is grateful for the house that these people lived in. And again, that's a little odd for us, but the, the concept is good. The idea is good. We need to be thankful for everything in our lives. Allison said something to you the other day. We were complaining about the car, and she goes, you know what? I was on my way to work, and, and I just realized it's good to have a car that can get me to work, you know? And that's what we should be thankful. Second thing, take the low place. Now, I think this one is pretty unpopular. But there is nothing more powerful and more refreshing than when you take the low place in your life. When you lower yourself, you're willing to humble yourself in, in, in the presence of other people. This may be like what we talked about earlier with lowering yourself to do a job that you think is beneath you, to go a place that you think is, is uh, this is not my kind of place, I'm not going to do that, or be around people that you think, oh, I don't want to be around those people. I don't want to, you know, I always remember, and we tell this with students all the time, is like, go sit with the kid at lunch that nobody wants to sit with. You know, take, take the lower position, humble yourself before others, and it, it speaks volumes. If you lead other people and you do this in your life, I promise you this could be the most powerful thing that you ever do as a leader, is to be willing to take the low place. And to say, you know what, no job is too small for me, no task is too little, nothing is beneath me. It will, it will literally change your life because you can't be prideful and take the low place. Third thing, learn from others. If you open yourself up to learn from others, both young and old, it will change your life. It will change your life because you can't help but be humbled as you learn from other people. Last week when we talked about cynicism, all part, this is all part of the idea of simply saying, I don't know everything there is to know, and I might be able to learn from you. You could learn from someone 20, 30 years younger than you, or 20, 30, 40 years older than you, if you just are willing to open yourself up to that. And again, it's so refreshing because... It avoids that hardened heart of, of cynicism and saying, well, I don't, I don't need to learn from you. I know everything there is to know already. Which is a heart that is not effective in the kingdom of God. And it's not effective in, in general sense, in your life, in your home life, as a family. That's not helpful. Fourth thing, push others into the spotlight. Push others into the spotlight. You cannot build yourself up Build your own platform or, or be full of pride while you push others into the spotlight. Have you ever been around somebody who is constantly doing that? It's like their life's mission to make everybody else the hero or, or, the, or, or famous. It's like they, they work themselves to the bone to just lift others up. I love being around people like that. It is awesome because you feel so good about yourself. And it's like, I don't even know why, but man, I could like, I could be president. I could take on, I could, I could conquer giants. And it's like, it's just so-and-so, whoever it is, just cheering you on and just lifting you up. There's nothing more refreshing than being around someone who always makes others the hero. 
And it's nothing more exhausting than being around other people who always make themselves the hero of their story. Every story they tell, every, everything that they do is like, it's all, it's all about me. If you could just do life like me, you'd be good. You'd be good. You'd be awesome. And then you would wake up every morning and sing a song about how awesome you are. Because you'd be like me, and I'm awesome. Right? Jim knows. He gets up every morning and says, I wish I could just be like Ian and have that hair. No, I'm just kidding. I love you, Jim. I wish I could golf like you. Last thing. Last thing. Be honest. Be honest. Get ridiculously honest about where you are on the journey. There's nothing better than just simply being honest about this and saying, I struggle with pride. Me, I'm failing in this area, and I'm going to be honest about it. A few years ago, um, we had wanted to get a load of rocks, a truckload of rocks. We had a truckload of rocks brought to our house and dumped in the driveway. I had no idea what I was in for. The idea was we were going to put all these rocks in. We have gardens that run. The, our house is, 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 is long. It's not, it's, not, it's, like, it's not big this way. It's, it's long. And so we, had, we have garden space that run all across the front and around the front uh, sidewalk and all the way over to the driveway. And then it goes on the other side of the driveway, all around the back of the house and all the way around the back of the house. And, we're, and every year it was like, do we do mulch or do we do rocks? Do we just let the weeds grow and take over our house and make it look like something out of a storybook, which is usually what happened, or do we just keep trying to weed it? And man, I was like, let's just get rocks. Let's get rocks and the weed barrier, and it's gonna be, it's gonna never, we'll never have to deal with another weed again. That's what I thought. I thought, oh, the weeds will go away because the rocks are heavy. What I discovered very quickly is that the weeds just grow up like the rocks aren't even there. It's like, what's the point? Why did we buy rocks? You do nothing, rocks. I mean, maybe you've made this mistake once upon a time, and now you know. But they just grow. And what I've learned is, is that weeds will always grow without any nurturing. They, will not, they don't need a, a bit of water. They don't need you to go out there and put miracle Grow on them. Nothing. They just grow. But flowers and grass are totally different. At least flowers that you want. I feel like the flowers you don't want are the ones, again, like weeds. They just grow. They're just all over the place. But like, if you want flowers and grass to grow, you have to water it. You have to feed it. You have to nurture it. See, that's like humility and pride. Pride is the weed that just grows no matter what. And humility is the thing that you have to cultivate and you have to work at and you have to constantly be honest about where you are because being honest is like going out and picking the weeds out and it's a dirty job, but it's got to be done. I like the way James says it in James chapter 3. We'll close with this. <clears throat> James chapter 3, verse 13 through 18. If you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. See, humility is wisdom. It's powerful in our lives. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition in your heart, don't cover it up, he says. Don't cover it up. Don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. 
For jealousy and selfish, selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. But the wisdom from above is first of all pure, all, first of all pure it is also peace-loving, gentle, and of good deeds. It shows... Sorry, I think I skipped a line there. Gentle at all times and willing to yield to others. It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. I love the way James says this, and it's uncomfortable, and it makes me feel uh, uh, like I, I, I fail a little bit, but like pride aligns us with the devil and his evil schemes. It's, it, it's, it's no good. It is not a place that we want to stay for very long. But humility aligns us with the wisdom of the Lord, and it plants seeds of peace into our life and reaps a harvest of righteousness. Which do you want, friends? Because you can't have both, unfortunately. You'll have one or the other. A heart full of weeds or a heart full of flowers of humility. What's it going to be? What kind of seeds are you planting in your heart? This morning as we close, Nathan is going to sing a song. And, and I just want you to kind of... Consider this for a moment, whether it's at your seat as you worship and as you sing or as you would come to the altar and pray. But consider this. What are you planning in your life? Is it pride or is it humility? May we not even allow pride to break the surface of the rocks before we're honest enough to go and just pick it out, before it even breaks the surface. Let's cultivate humility this morning. My challenge to you, I'll give you one thing and then we're going to let him sing. My challenge to you is to do one of those five things we mentioned this week in your life. Be it to take the low place or to be honest or to any of the other things. Check your gratitude. Learn from others. Push someone else into the spotlight. Do that this week in a relationship and see if it doesn't change the dynamic of that relationship. Let's stand together. May we lay it all down at the feet of Jesus. Amen. Let's pray together. If some of you want to come and pray for those who are up around the altar, that would be great if, if you feel comfortable doing that. Jesus. We just ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to lay it all down. That we could be people who in our lives lay down our pride every, every day, every, every situation that we're in, everywhere we go. God, pride is so much at the root of every sin that we struggle with. And may we lay it down. God, help us to be honest about where we are. Help us to learn from others. Help us to push others into the spotlight and Help us to, God, be thankful and, and just trust you more in our lives. Jesus, go with us as we leave this place this morning. We go into our work week this week. May we go 
with an attitude of humility, cultivating a greater sense of humility in our lives, Lord, to humble ourselves before others, to humble ourselves in our marriage, in our parenting, in our work, and in and, and, and what we do as a church, and in our community, Lord. Help us, Jesus, to be more like you every day and to love people like you love them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much, church, for being here. Have a great week.